Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? Ah, uh, welcome along to episode 103 of the Howie Games Part A. Stoked you are kindly giving the show some of your time. Right off the top, I would love it if you could all do me a favour and recommend the show to one person, just one person, that you think may enjoy listening or help someone who does not know what a podcast is to get set up and tuned in. That'd be super cool. So you search and try to find But you don't know where to go So many thoughts flood through your mind You're confused and want to know Mystery, what is to be? So much more than meets the eye Listen to me, time is your key You will find out by and by Okay, this week I am pumped to be bringing to you golfer, commentator and all-round good guy, Ian Baker Finch. Baker Finch for a birdie at the second. And he's made it. This journey through Finchie's life has a bit of something for everyone. The early days, cruising to tournaments in, wait for this, his Valiant, yes, Finchie drove a Valiant, nice wheels, the world stage playing with the likes of Jack Nicholas and Tom Watson and later a young Tiger Woods, Finchie's crowning moment lifting the claret jug and then a really open and honest discussion about how Ian lost his game and the pain that caused him. By the way, if you aren't across our new content, the player profile, you should be, it flies through a series of short and sharp questions and answers that reveals all sorts of weird and wacky things you will not hear in the full podcast. Please go and check out Finchie's from last week. Here's a bit of a taste. Team you barracked for as a kid? Uh, It would be footy, but it was the Brisbane competition back then in in the 70s. It would have been Valleys. Obviously, AFL, Hawthorne, and to this day. I went to every grand final in the 80s, and the Hawks were in about six or seven of them from memory. Okay, let's tee off with Ian Michael Baker Finch. So when you search, and then you find, and know just where to go, and thoughts that once used to cloud your mind, you see clearly, and now you know, mystery, what is to be revealed. King Selassie, come on children, try it with me, we want to reach Mount Zion. Finchie, I've been tremendously excited about doing this. We've tried to organise a few times. COVID's got in the way a couple of times. We were hoping to do it together at one point not too long ago. There's so much to talk to you about, but the game of golf has provided you with so many highs. It's provided you with some tough times and now it provides you with a life in your wonderful golf commentary today. At the moment, how do you view the game of golf? Um, golf as a sport or my life in golf? Golf. Um, I think golf is a, an amazing game. Uh, it's my love when it comes to, uh, to sport. I play it every day I can. Uh, I like to get better, although at my age, 60 this year, I'm not getting better. But uh, golf is uh, it's a boutique game. You know, it's not for everybody. Uh, I don't think it should try and be sold to everybody. I kind of like the fact that it's intriguing and enticing at the same time and um, something a little special, something a little different. Um, It's certainly a game for life. You can play from 8 to 80 and uh, play together from 8 to 80. And uh, that's, that's what I love about golf. You can play with anybody. You learn a lot about them in that three, four or five hours that you, you spend with people. So 
yeah, it's it's something spe- it's well, it's very special to me because it has been my life and continues to be my life. But the game itself is special. Can you still learn on the golf course? Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, I do, and I I do learn. I I read a lot. Being in the business, I'm all the time trying to get better at that as well, and learning from the players that we're um, following and uh, commentating on, analysing. The game has changed a lot. The sport has changed. Uh, a lot more athletes are playing the game. It's a, it's a big change over the last 20 years. But, yeah, I'm all the time trying to figure out. The, the problem with me is as I've got older, it's, it's within the confines of what my body allows me to do. Um, most 60-year-old professional golfers are pretty beaten up in the lower back and the facet joints and the hips, uh, as am I. So uh, some days are better than others. But, uh, yeah, always trying to learn, always trying to get better. And when did this love affair with the game of golf first start? What's your first golf memory? Uh, it would be caddying for my dad at Beewa Golf Club in Queensland on the Sunshine Coast. Um, when the highway used to go past the golf course, everyone knew it as the course with all the kangaroos because you'd drive past Beewa Golf Club and there'd be a 1,000 kangaroos on the side of the road. Um, Dad and a few other farmers in the area built the golf course back in the late 60s. <laughs> and I would drive down on the back of the tractor from our farm down to Beewa and uh, help the old fellas there uh, you know, build this golf course and sit on the back of the dozer and, you know, just had a lot of fun. And then when it was all done, Dad started to play and I would caddy for him. So that was really about 1970, I guess. I started to really enjoy it and got my first set of clubs on my 12th birthday and started to play. What a wonderful memory to have the game that so dominated your life to start alongside your father building a golf course. That's a beautiful story, Finchie. Yeah, it, it was just a country little course, no bunkers, nine holes, uh, pine trees down the sides of the fairways, just as you'd expect a little country course. It's 18 holes now. They've, they've since in the last 30 years or so built another nine, and it's a really nice nice golf course. Great greens, uh, just a genuine, lovely, country, fun golf course. And what were those first set of clubs? What do you remember about them? Were they a Christmas present? Were they a birthday present? Did they turn up in the garage? <laughs> birthday present, little brown bag a little black trolley that we put the little brag on. It was a, a two wood, a three, five, seven iron and a putter. That was the usual back in those days. Pretty much all mum and dad could afford anyway. And then I'd work on the farm and I'd work on other guys' farms in the area to uh, to build the set. So I eventually made a full set out of it. It was about $15 a club back in those days. and <laughs> You could earn about $5 an hour picking tobacco. So I would go pick tobacco and pick pineapples and various things to make some money to be able to afford a full set of clubs. And then when I was about 13 and a half, I got a set of Dennis Brosnan's PGMs, which was a beautiful matched set of 14 clubs in a big green golf bag. And uh, I still remember them vividly. So yeah, it was, uh, golf was, it was unusual to play golf at that age in the country. There weren't many, there weren't many young kids playing golf. In fact, I think I was the only kid that rode the bus to school at high school with these golf clubs and up the front with the bus driver. And hmm. uh, I, I started the golf program at our high school, at Caboolture High School, got, got Wednesday golf in the sport program so we could go to Caboolture Golf Club and play golf. So, yeah, that was in the early early 70s. And what was it about golf, Finchie? As you said, normally you're attracted to what your mates are doing. You were forging a solo path on the golf course. What was it about the game? 
I think it was that it was solo in a way. Um, even when I was playing cricket, and I played all sports, I played tennis, cricket, uh, soccer. Um, living on the farm, it was solo in a way anyway because we were so far away, you were a mile from the nearest neighbours. and You know, in our school, in grade seven at our primary school in Peachester in Queensland, Australia, there was 35 kids in the entire school. Huh. Some rode their horses. One of the kids rode his motorbike. Most of us just walked barefoot. Um, so there was a lot of different bikes, obviously, a lot of different ways of the area coming to this little school. So we're kind of solo in a lot of ways anyway, and I'd beat balls around the yard. And, um, I like that solitude of going to the, to the golf after school and, and practicing and trying to get better. And I think as a kid, whatever you're really good at, you tend to gravitate to when you start doing well at something. You tend to think, oh, that's, that's what I really like. Um, I was good at cricket, but I was also the biggest kid. So I wasn't necessarily good at it. I was just the biggest. So that makes a big difference. Um, and I love bowling. I was going to be Dennis Lilly, you know, everyone, big, <laughs> tall kids. That's who we were going to be in the 70s. <laughs> and, uh, but, um, yeah, I love the fact that I could do it with dad as well. You know, it was something you could play. He, he was a farmer, so he didn't get to do much fun stuff. He was always working. So uh, to go spend the afternoon with dad and all the old fellas down at the club and have a beer afterwards, I was 12 or 13 and they'd always buy me a beer. And I was like, no, no, I'm 12. And they'd say, you're not 12. Look at the size of you. <laughs> it was funny. But, uh, anyway, good good times, good good, healthy, uh, you know, down, down home sort of upbringing. What type of farm was it, Finchie, that your mum and dad were working? Yeah, a bit of everything. It was um, over the years it changed from pineapples at the start to in the end we had uh, 10,000 laying hens and about 500 pigs. Huh. And then... In the mid-70s, Dad gradually got out of the livestock as, as feed prices and uh, different things in the industry became a bit more difficult and he planted avocados. So he's actually sold the farm as an avocado farm in 1982, but that was long after I'd gone. Uh, 25 acres uh, up on the ridge just above the, the coast. So it was at about 1,500 feet. So he had frosts in the winter and Nice area. A lot of people live there now and commute to Brisbane. It's only about an hour into Brisbane now. It used to be a lot more on the old roads. Yeah, it's not a bad area. And growing up with pineapples, do you now never eat a pineapple or are you absolutely delighted by pineapples or did you just have too many of them? (laughs) No, no, I love pineapples. I love all fruit. Avocados too. It's funny, I never liked avocados when we are on the farm, but I love them now. But uh, it's funny, in, in in the old days there, everyone would barter. So we always gave people eggs and uh, then we'd get, you know, avocados from people or we'd get, you know, a friend of ours with cows, we'd give them milk, she would make butter. So we'd get butter from her from our milk. Uh, we'd get tomatoes. It was just such a, a farming area that everyone bartered with their produce and uh, still remember those days of, you know, having to deliver the milk or deliver the eggs and come back with a big box full of tomatoes or a box full of avocados or bananas or whatever everyone else had. You need to be telling when she gets old enough your beautiful new granddaughter these stories because she'll be like, what? You were swapping milk yeah. for avocados and eggs. <laughs> so, Finchie, yeah. what influence did you have? Was there golf on TV? Like how did you make the leap in your mind that there was a chance at some point for some people to play golf for a living? Mm. 
Interesting. We, we watched um, the Celebrity Golf Classics was one of the shows on TV. Remember back in those days? With, yes. uh, yeah, I think Lee Trevino, Peter Alice used to do the commentary. Um, Johnny Miller, I think, was on there sometimes. Uh, Tony Jacklin. And they had all these celebrities and Dad used to like watching that. Well, now that the Marley Trophy series is over, we've uh, stayed on for an extra week because there's been a grand challenge thrown out. The gauntlet is down. We have two very famous celebrities challenging. They're having the temerity to challenge the two great professionals that have been with us for the last nine games, Jerry Pate and Lee Trevino. On my left, making the challenge, we have the great man from the world of the cinema, Sean Connery. You've got a good partner there, sir. I'm thrilled to bits because I'll need one. Will you? Are yeah. you a bit rusty? A little. I'm sort of over the hill at the moment. I've been oh, overindulging no. in work. Work, yes. Well, it's good. So I, I got into it that way. And then, then the, some of the Australian tournaments in the mid-70s would be on. You know, the World's Masters, the Australian Open. Got to watch Jack and Arnie. But really it was Dad saying, hey, you know, watch these guys. It's fun. And then I'd watch and then I'd go out and try and emulate them. And, you know, this part for the Masters or this part for the Open Championship, what that sort of stuff is all kids do. Um, but there wasn't a lot of golf uh, on TV in those days, not, not like there was uh, more so in the 80s, I think, where it became a bit more popular. But I started playing uh, in some Monday Pro-Ams. As I got better when I was 15, uh, I would go down to Brisbane and play in these Pro-Am days, with, and I got to meet a couple of the golf pros. And one of the pros, Gary Wright, his name was, he was a, a young pro at Gympie Golf Club. He said, you know, you're a good player, you're a four handicap, and you know, shooting in the 60s sometimes, would you like to be my assistant pro? And I asked mum and dad and they said, well, you're young enough. Um, if you'd like to give it a try, you can always come back to school next year and, and finish school if you don't like it. So I left school after grade 10. Uh, I just turned 15 and I went up to Gympie and was an assistant golf pro to Gary Wright. And I was just actually loved the game and thought I could be a club pro. And then in those days, there was Billy Dunk and Teddy Ball and guys like that that were club pros um, and pretty good players. So I thought, well, maybe I could even be a good enough player that I could play some and play the Australian Open and, um, and be a club pro as well. Did my apprenticeship and finished that July 79, so I was 18, and uh, was a good enough player that I could play a little bit, got better and went off and played tournaments and improved my game what was your first as a professional what was your first paycheck i don't mean your first win i'm like when was the first time as a golfer someone handed you some cash or a check and said there you go oh well straight away when when i started my apprenticeship you know you play these monday days and everyone would throw five bucks in or whatever and uh, the trainees, the, the better trainees would get money donated by the members into a purse. We called it, you know, 100, 200, whatever dollars, and we'd go play for that. So there's a bunch of us, and we'd go play Mondays and make some money that way. And that I was only earning $40 a week. So that helped me uh, pay for the bus fare down from Gympie to, to get down to Brisbane to play. And, You're on the bus. Oh, I had to. I was 15. So I was at four, I'd get up at four in the morning. And uh, get the four o'clock bus that used to get to Brisbane about six thirty-seven in the morning, and my buddy Jeff Woodland would pick me up and drive me to the pro am, and we'd play thirty-six holes and have a pizza at Pizza Hut and a few <laughs> beers, and 
and then uh, head back on the bus the next morning. So <laughs> pizza and pizza hut. <laughs> it was it was simple times, that's for sure. You know, you can't afford much when you're earning forty dollars a week. So what would have been the first proper professional tournament you played in? Well, I uh, the Queensland Open, nineteen seventy eight. I was seventeen. Uh, made the cut. Actually, shot sixty seven. I think the second day, which is pretty cool. My brother Laurie was caddying for me. And that got me in the next week. I went down and played in the Garden State PGA in, in, uh, in Melbourne at the Woodlands Golf Club, played there. Hmm. And in those days, if you made the cut, you would go to the next tournament. And if you didn't, you'd have to Monday qualify. I got you. Uh, or be in, the, be in the top 60 in the money earners. So I'd play as much as I could. Then I'd go back and earn some money, go work on the farm, whatever, and then go play again. Uh, I do remember the first Pro-Am I won was the 3rd of July, 1979. It was the Ipswich Pro-Am, and it was uh, a $1,500 Pro-Am, so I won $285. Woo-hoo. That was my first check as a full pro. <laughs> so uh, those are the days. You know, if you, if every, anyone in – when we're traveling around, the young guys, if you want to check over $100, you, you bought your mates a beer and maybe took them out to dinner because you didn't get a decent check very often when you're first starting out. And uh, as I said, it was very, very different then to the way it is now. So when you started to get these um, small checks trickling in, did you continue on the bus or did you get yourself a vehicle for the first time, Finchie? Yeah, I got a car when I was 17, obviously. had uh, You know, you got to have a car the day you turn 17. What did you go with? Queenslander. Uh, I had a, um, a VE Valiant. It was a 1968 Valiant. Uh, had a 273 V8 in it. It was a bloody beauty. <laughs> it was and, a uh, bloody beauty. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what that lasted she? about a year. It was a blue, um, kind of a, a a mid blue, you know, like <laughs> like a dull sky blue. If you would. Yeah, it was it was a good and it had bucket seats, mate, and a V8 engine. I mean, what more could you ask for? No, I don't any nothing, nothing. <laughs> As a Queenslander, stopping in a Pizza Hut, having beers and driving yeah. in Valiant, these sounds like really fun times. Ed. Yeah, it was. And then we just we played many tournaments and pro ams for those college years. You know, the university years where everyone's going and learning their trade, and they go off from eighteen to twenty-two. Well, for us. Uh, young blokes, so Wayne Grady was another one that came, Pete Senior, uh, Pete McWinnie, you know, we'd all go off and play in these, Mike Harwood, Peter Fowler, we'd go play these little mini tournaments and we did that for about four years and uh, then I started to play better and, and went off and played in, in bigger events. The thing I love about podcasts is you can digress all over the place. You just mentioned the great Wayne Grady and obviously we've both worked with him can you just tell the people that won't have ever had the experience or knowledge what he has down at the bottom of his backyard for want of a better term as a in, bar a bar this, <laughs> in his own it's a pub it's a pub in his backyard isn't it but it's a proper yep. well-run establishment Yes, and well stocked too, I might add. Yes, yes, with beers on tap in his backyard. Quite an extraordinary man, isn't he? Yeah, he's great, and uh, it's pretty amazing. All of the guys that played at that time, how many of them went on to be, you know, very successful, just playing the Sunshine Circuit in Queensland and pro am tournaments around Australia, and uh, you know, for Grades and I to go off and, and win a major after you know, that sort of upbringing and background was pretty special. So your first professional win, Finchie, was it in New Zealand? 
Yes. Yeah, I finished runner-up in the Australian Open at Kingston Heath in 1983, end of November. On its way, and it's looking good. Oh, he, oh, oh. <laughs> he was... <laughs> He was at the hole when the ball fell in. <laughs> well, that's a fantastic round of 67 today for Ian Baker Finch. It's got him at least second place in this Australian Open Championship. 67 today for Baker Finch. Five under for the round. And the next week, we you know, flew Monday down to New Zealand and I won the New Zealand Open at uh, Auckland Golf Club in Auckland, obviously. So I won 16,000 for second at the Aussie Open and 18000 at the New Zealand Open for winning. So I had $34,000 in the pocket and you know, I thought I was a millionaire. So what was it like as a young bloke growing up, you're on the farm and then all of a sudden you're handed the trophy as the winner of a professional golf tournament? Uh, yeah. At, at the time, I thought it was just a natural progression. It was like finally I've, I've made it. You know, I've, I nearly won last week. Happy for Chucky. Chucky won the Open. Um, you know, I've won this one. It got me into the British Open the next year. It got me so many starts. Um, I guess it was the start of believing in myself that I could do this for a living. And it, and it was a good living in that day and age, 23, to, you know, I'd come from being broke my whole life, not having $50 in the bank, having to pay off a car, to all of a sudden having some money that I could think about putting a down payment on a house the following year, you know, things like that. So. Yeah, it was uh, it was an amazing experience. I played with with um, Wayne Grady all four days actually, and we we stayed together. And I played with him, and he still you know makes mention of the way I'd miss a putt and I'd get all angry and I'd walk around and tap it back in from four feet. And you know we had he's got some great memories of it as well. But yeah, we were we were just Queensland kids out there having a good time and and practicing hard and trying to make it. And uh, we never dreamt really being millionaires and, and uh, you know, winning majors and all that sort of stuff. That I certainly didn't at that stage. I just wanted to be able to play golf for a living. Back to IBF in a moment. Next up on the show, we are going into a realm we haven't explored a great deal, but a lot of you ask for, and I'm right into, extreme sports with snowboarding triple world champion, if you don't mind, Scotty James. So on a, on a training day in the pipe, mm-hmm. how many runs are you doing? Uh... Old Scotty would have stayed up for two hours, dicked around a bit, probably did one hard trick, felt good with it and gone home. Scotty in the past five years would stay up for four hours, do, uh, yeah, four hours of training, hiking the whole time, making sure I'm the last one there to prove a point that you won't beat me. Right. Wow. (laughs) But mate, that's 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 why you're sitting here now as yeah. the best in the world. And I think it's it's interesting because the being fit doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to be a better snowboarder, and being stronger doesn't mean I'm going to be better. It's not like if I can run a two k time trial like an AFL player, no. you're probably going to be a better AFL player because you're going to be fit, you're going to be at the ball more, you're going to be able to do more because you're fit. Whereas for me, it's more so like this is what I know or what I'm going to do to give me the edge to know that I've done so much more than my competitors, which if they listen to this, they might hear me and say whatever, but, like, I know I am. Scotty's player profile will be out next Thursday, his full episode a week later. Let's get back to Ian. So as a result of 
the New Zealand Open, as you said, that got you entry into the Open. So tell me about the journey to get there, like the physical journey, and then what was it like when you saw these European courses for the first time? You know, you've come from the back of Queensland, you're driving your Valiant, and you go to Pizza Hut, and then what, have you got on the Qantas jet and flown to England, or how's it rolled out? Well, it started, I'd already been playing around Australia. Jenny's with me, who I'm married to now for 33 years. She was my girlfriend then, and we travelled from 1984. I said, come on, we're going to give this a crack. Uh, we're going to fly business class. I'm not doing it on the cheap. You're going to come in with me and uh, we'll, we'll give it a couple of years and see if I can do this. If not, we'll just come back and, and you know, I'll get a club job or do, do what we do. So that was the, the mindset then was this is what we're going to do. I had 13 invitations in Europe in a row, 13 weeks in a row, including the British Open. So I played West Australian Open, uh, another little tournament there, flew to the US, played two tournaments flew to Europe and played 13 in a row um, and then planned on coming back to Australia and I played a couple in Japan actually on the way home. So in those days, we are playing 40 tournaments a year. We didn't say, oh, we're going to play this one, we'll miss this week, we're going to have three weeks off here like they do now. We just played every week. What else are we going to do? And uh, off we went. That was my my uh, foray under the European tour for the first time. And, and I went... Uh, 19th, 4th, 4th in the first three tournaments. And I went down to the St Andrews to get ready for the British Open at St Andrews. And I played four straight days with Peter Thompson, Kel Nagel and Graham Marsh. And uh, they showed me around the course, which was fantastic. And uh, practiced hard, got to know the course. What impression did it have on you, Finchie? You've grown up on a golf course that you helped your dad build and then all of a sudden you're at the home of golf. Did it have that impact on you or was it just another golf course? Oh, no, it was the home of golf. You know, it was St Andrews, the Swalkin Bridge. That, uh, the, um, the first time you look at it, it's like, wow, is this really a golf course? You know, it's kind of brown and barren and um, bunkers everywhere and heather and it's all pretty flat. Well undulating in a way that the topography is flat. You can see the horizon, you know, it's right there. So anyway, very, very different, very firm, very fast, which suited me. And I guess the main thing was having such learned champions to show me around and I saw it from their eyes first. I didn't have to think about it all or uh, worry about am I, how am I going to do this uh, you know, this British Open stuff first time. I had Open champions showing me around and telling me how to do it. Great memories. Still, to this day, vivid memories. And Baker Finch, 11 under, back at the par four, fourth hole. And would you believe it, another birdie. And that puts the young man from Australia 12 under par. 36 hole, leader... Do you get home on the Friday night and start to think about what could potentially unfold? As a no. young man, what's your view at that stage? Well, I, I was staying in a house with Jenny and Steve Williams, who was Tiger's famous caddy, he used to caddy for me. At the time, he was caddying for um, Mike Clayton, I believe. So we had Wayne Grady, Mike Clayton, Steve Williams, myself, Jenny, and our manager, Steve, in a house. <laughs> One bathroom, three-bedroom house, 
20 minutes away on a little farm uh, in a little village up on the, on the river. And we'd go to the pub each night and have a pub dinner, play some darts, have a pint. And uh, that's just what we did. So here I was, I shot 68, 66 the first two days, and I'm up at the pub having a steak and kidney pie and a, and a pint, playing darts. Um, slept well. Next day, went out and shot 71 and uh, continued to lead. Um, I didn't, in the back of my mind, it was like, yeah, I can win this. I'm playing well. I, I feel good, whatever. But I never really allowed myself to get ahead and think, wow, I could be the open champion at the end of the week. I, I wasn't thinking that way. And what did you learn in the final round when it didn't go your way? Um, I learnt a lot. I got on the first tee there, last group, final group, Tom Watson and I, leading the Open Championship, playing alongside Tom Watson, who had won five at that point, two in a row. He was going for three in a row and for his sixth. So he was strong favourite, obviously. I was this kid from the bush that no one knew and uh, was expected to fold, and I did. But I didn't, I wasn't like shaking nervous or worried or anything. I just was out of my rhythm, out of my routine, became flustered when things didn't go my way, hit it into a bunker and it would be up against the wall and I couldn't get it out, you know, take a double instead of just a bogey. You know, things like that, it all added up. At the top, Baker finishes heroics are sadly over. And a double bogey at the sixth confirms it. And about halfway through the back nine, I was like, um, you know, what am I going to do? I, you know, I better try and finish strong. I don't want to shoot 80. And I birdied 16 and 18 to shoot 79, I think, on the day and finished ninth in the tournament. So I went from leading to ninth. It was a pretty dismal performance. But it made me think that, hey, I can do this. And now the final putts of this year's Open from young Ian Baker Finch. And he only needs one. What a superb finish. This young Australian who gave us such excitement on the first three days has the last word. I've performed on the world stage. I've played with, if not the greatest, one of the greatest players at the time. Perhaps the greatest player at the time was Seve, who won it. I still remember him, you know, the fist pump mm. on the 18th green when he won. Seve at the 18th for a birdie three. A putt that will swing from right to left. ecstasy but that's what made me realize yes I'd messed up I just got ahead of myself I was a bit quick I was a bit flustered but I can do this I and it was then when I played the next couple of weeks I finished second the next week went over to Ireland and finished second in a European tour event so I was, I was still playing well um, and that sort of I became a little bit famous there because of it I was this kid that led the Open, and then he finished second the next week. And, um, you know, I started getting people that invite me to stay at their hotel, so we started to stay in a bit better hotel and you know, nice. things like that, right? It was just I just became a little bit more known, and uh, that was the start of it. That's when I started to think that I could win this. So um, that was my goal from, from then on. Instead of my goal being I want to play in the Open, my goal became I want to win the Open. How important is mindset in the game of golf? It's everything. 
it's as uh, the great Yogi Berra, who was a famous baseball player over here, who came up with these uh, intriguing um, statements or uh, analogies to things. He said, the, the, game, the game is uh, 90% mental and the other 10% is all in your head. <laughs> right. So he coined all, a lot of these phrases that, that are, uh, you know, famous here in the States. You know, I'm, I'm not sure they're as famous at home, but everyone's heard that, right? That's golf. Golf is, it's all in the head. Obviously, there's a chicken and egg component, if you will, to um, – practicing hard and getting good at your trade to build confidence. But there's also that uh, the sports psychologists and, and various other people will say, you know, be confident, you know, trick yourself, you know, act, act confident and the other will come. You know, it's, a, it's, it's to me though, I believe it's pretty much all in the head. You obviously have to work hard. You have to be good at what you do and you have to train and practice. And But at the end of the day, if, if you aren't um, – mentally tough if you're not bulletproof i would call it you can't do it tough one for you you mentioned standing alongside tom watson a giant figure in the game of all the times you've played golf finchy who's the best player you've ever played with i've played with them all yeah played a lot with peter thompson played a lot with jack nicholas played a little bit with tiger um, mate, it's hard to go against Tiger. <laughs> he's, he's the full package. Talk about mentally tough. But all three of them were mental giants. Peter Thompson, no one in the history of the game ever made the game look so simple, nor did anyone make it sound so simple, let alone appear simple. So Peter Thompson from Australia is for the fifth time Open champion. But he, he was asked once in the early 60s to write a book and uh, his entire thought, he did it overnight and he brought, he said, I can't do this book. Here's, here's my thoughts on the game. And I still have a, a penciled copy of what he wrote. It was a page and a half, just a regular school page and a half. Of, that was his thoughts. You know, I, I draw the club back away from the ball, things like that. Huh. And that's how he made the game appear, right? Just really, really simple. And then you had Jack who just, uh, he was so competitive, all he wanted to do was win and he figured out a way to win and that was his formula. Jack Nicklaus wins his sixth Masters, his 20th major championship at the age of 46, four years older than anyone ever has been as a champion of the Masters. And, and he never left a shot without figuring out in his mind what he had done if he had hit a bad one. You know what I mean? He'd stay there and he'd think about his swing and say, okay, that's it. Put the club back in the bag and off he'd go. He, he figured it out. I don't think he ever remembered a putt that he missed. You know, if you ever said to him, remember that one? You, no, did I miss one there? You know, it's, <laughs> it, uh, he was just mentally so in tuned to his game and... and and winning, I think, had the game been the way it is now. I, let me just say, you know, digressing a little bit, all the great champions of any era would be great champions in every era, regardless. Bobby Jones would be number one in the world now if he was playing now. Peter Thompson, 
Jack Nicholas, Tiger Woods, Greg Norman was was up there in that that you know elite stratosphere. Tom Watson, of course, various others. But there's something about the great champions. They have a weapon, but nearly all of the great champions have been wonderful athletes. Arnold Palmer, another one, Gary Player, but they've been mentally stronger than their competition. And Tiger epitomizes that. He, to me, he's the greatest golfer of all time because he was the best at every aspect of the game, as well as the the mental toughness and, and competitive nature that he that he showed. So he he's Arnold Palmer changed the game. Bobby Jones changed the game. Uh, ben Hogan to an extent. Arnold Palmer for sure. Jack Nicklaus the way he played, and no one till Tiger really changed the game. But but Tiger changed it. A couple of those gentlemen then, tell me a, a brief story about two of them. Like, tell me a story about playing golf. Like, th- this is These are big names. Tell me a story about playing golf with Jack Nicklaus. Uh, first, first time I played with Jack was 1985 British Open, obviously the year after I'd performed so well in 84. His caddy came over to me, um, Willie Anderson, and he said, uh, would you like to have a practice round? I, I said, you mean with the big fella? He said, yeah, yeah, Jack. Jack would like you to have a practice round with him. So Jack asked me to have a practice round with him at uh, uh, Royal St. George's Sandwich, commonly known, in 1985 at the Open. So we're, we're just him and I off having a practice round in a British Open. <laughs> I'm like... <laughs> Like a kid in a candy store, obviously. It's, uh, it's uh, just amazing. We're walking down, and it's a term that I still use with my own kids and did when they were young. Uh, he, he's uh, walking up the hill at the third past Hell's Bunker, and he farts. Really, it's a cracker. You know, it's an absolute cracker. And I said, don't, don't tear it, Jack. I'll take the whole piece. And he said, oh, no, no, that's a South African barking spider. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> so whenever I inadvertently drop one in front of the kids, I'd say, oh, it's South African barking spider. So, that is a, a great story. Tiger, you, you played you played a lot of practice rounds early doors with Tiger, didn't you, Finchie? Yeah, a little bit. And then we practiced putting a lot. Um, I was finishing up playing and was playing poorly when Tiger first came along. But early on in the piece, his uh, manager, Hughes Norton, uh, we were living in Orlando at Isleworth and uh, were playing at Isleworth Country Club where Tiger came to live when he became a professional golfer. And they asked us to um, play with Tiger, Mark, M- Mark O'Meara and myself. So we played with him as a young kid. Uh, I just won the Open. Mark obviously was an accomplished player, multi-winner on the tour. And, and this kid, Tiger, had just won the first U.S. junior. He went on to win three U.S. juniors in a row and then three U.S. amateurs in a row. So I knew him at the start. So how old would he have been I then, Finchie? He was, uh, well, under 18. So 15 he would have been, first right. time. So then 16 at the second win, 17 at the third win, then 18, 19, 20. And then at 20 he turned pro and he won a tournament on the PGA Tour in Las Vegas at the end of... I want to say it was maybe end of October of 96. Uh, he was still only 20. And he wanted to go out and celebrate that night and they wouldn't let him in. <laughs> I got a quick one. They said, the guy at the door said, uh, come on, mate, 
you've got to let him in. He won the tournament today. This is Tiger Woods. And he says, I don't care if he's the Lion King. He's not coming in here. <laughs> so true story. But I got to really watch him and, and watch him grow, you know. And then uh, then we played a bit uh, when I was finishing up and, and he was starting out. And then we kind of kept a really good rapport uh, as he was a young professional and I was doing television because he's my old caddy, Steve Williams, uh, who'd caddied for Greg Norman for many years and Raymond Floyd for many years. You know, I was like starting out with him, um, was his caddy. So I always had this really good rapport with Steve as well. So he was just something extra special and he did everything he possibly could to be the best he could be from a very young age and it, and it showed. You know, could really you see it? At, he was he was different to the rest. Could you see it at fifteen when you were playing with him and Mark? Like, did you go away after the first round and say, "Oh, this is another decent kid," or "Wow, this guy's"? Oh no, this oh wow, this guy's really good. Wow, he's going to be Tiger Woods, the most famous player of all time. No, I, I didn't know that at fifteen, but I knew he was going to be the best he could be because everything he did, every question he asked, every everything he did, each time we played, he had the tape on the finger the same. He, he, was um, just, yeah, special. Okay, that is the end of Ian Baker Finch Part A. See you on the flip side where Ian talks about what happens when an athlete loses his game. Listener.